Now, this morning we're going to be talking about worship, and uh, worship is really our response to God's goodness. And uh, I love that particular song Kia sang, just that idea that this person's thinking about, I wake up in the morning and remember that you've been thinking about me, and then you've been speaking to me, um, and you're speaking to my heart. And so the song is just a response to God's goodness to do all of those things, and uh, just to give back to God orient, glory and honor for his greatness. And, and worship, a lot of the sermons for me, recently I kind of discovered, well, I realized that I left my guitar in, in China and I haven't been playing much, I haven't been singing as much as usual. And, and I realized that um, I hadn't been having times where I just kind of sit there and individually worship God and... Um, and that my soul was, was longing for that. Um, and so part of this is just a reminder to me of how, Im- how important that is, that we worship God corporately and that we also worship him individually. So I wanted to start just talking about, you know, what is worship? It's the act of declaring the greatness of God or of showing how worthy God is. The old English, I guess, was worthskype or worthskype. So this idea of worship related to God's worth. So worship is all about expressing reverence, adoration, honor for God because he is worthy of it. It's telling God how worthy he is and praising him because he is worthy of our praise. And I think singing is one of the ways that we worship God, not the only way. Our obedience to God is is worship to him. He, we say, God, you're worthy, you're so great, I will follow you because you are so holy and worthy and great. And the song is, is really very intimate. Um, when, I got, uh, when I proposed to Helen, I sang a song, and you know, that's a, a very intimate song for us. And um, you know, f- for her to hear me singing to her, you know, whenever somebody... If ever, ever someone sung a song to you, well, it's very intimate. And that's why worship in, in the form of singing is so pleasing to God. Uh, I have also had, it's also inappropriate uh, to worship other things or uh, that God only should really get our worship. Uh, but sometimes there are other things in our lives. Maybe we start thinking, oh, if I become really successful, uh, that success becomes our God, and we begin to worship it and give it more uh, honor than, than we should. I had a very awkward situation once years ago where um, in Nanning, we'd been in China for 17 years, but in the capital city, one year, all of a sudden, there were 18 Korean missionaries that had come. And it just seemed like they came out of nowhere. One day, somebody said, you know, we said, Oh, it seems like there's more Koreans. So I said, yeah, there's 20 of them now. We're like, wow, really? And I'd known a number of them. Uh, some of the Korean Americans were our teammates, and we'd enjoyed a long, good relationship with them. But one day they asked me to come and give a talk to them about the Zhuang people that we were working among and some of the history of the work. And so I shared with them some of the history of what had gone on. And uh, most of the meeting was in Korean, and my good friend, Steve Kim, that's why it's always easy to remember Steve's name. Um, he was doing the translating, and it got to the end, and he said, 
Wade, um, they want to sing a song. I said, oh, okay, great. No, they said, well, they're, they're going to sing this song to you. I said, what? <laughs> he said, yeah, it's kind of a Korean thing. I was like, okay. Well, and this guy gets up, and he starts, starts by saying, Brother Wade, you, we feel ashamed when we compare ourselves to you. You have gone and helped rescue North Koreans and smuggled, helped smuggle them into China. You've done something that we weren't even willing to do. We have so much respect for you. Well, the problem was I hadn't done that. <laughs> what actually has happened, uh, Abe probably remembers this, there was five guys from New Song. We had a project. They came over. They were all Korean-Americans, except one of the guys still had his Korean passport. And we had this project. They were coming, and they were, we just developed some new videotapes with the Jesus film and the Zhuang language, some other resources, and they were going to take this down to this village and hide these, basically, these resources, and then leave, and then hopefully a couple, a week or two weeks later, people would find them and watch them, and then a month later, uh, we were going to send a Mandarin-speaking team in there and to kind of see if anybody found it, uh, but this way, people wouldn't get, it would be illegal to just pass them out. So we got involved in this project, but at that time, we, the, when the five Korean-Americans signed into the hotel, at that time, there had been this smuggling going on in China, People, the Underground Railroad. A lot of South Koreans and Korean-Americans were involved in helping North Korean Christians get out of Korea into China and then out to other countries. And because of that, the, we didn't know this, but all the hotels have been told if there's any Koreans that, that come, uh, that let us know, the police. And so apparently when they signed in immediately, the police found out about it. They went to their room that night and... The next, we gave them a bunch of these materials and Bibles and books, and the next morning, but we didn't, we weren't allowed, it was odd, we weren't allowed to meet with them, but we thought, oh, it's just this hotel, it's real strict, but the next morning, the police followed them to our place, we were going to debrief them, uh, final instructions before they got on this bus to go. Well, the police followed them, and I was out at the street waiting for them, and suddenly, six plainclothes policemen came out of these cars and surrounded me and said, take us to your house. And at the same time, they got the Korean guys out of their taxi and were asking them questions, took them back to the police station. And in the end, to make a long story short, God blessed it. Uh, but at the, that day, we thought we spent 13 hours at the police station. We thought we were going to get kicked out. Um, in the end, the team had to leave the next day for Hong Kong. They were kind of kicked out. And I went to get my passport, and we thought, oh, they're just going to ban us for five to ten years. But they, gave, they scolded me and gave it back to me. But that morning, they were taking us back, or they said, take us to your house. And I didn't really understand why, but I was afraid because the night before, we'd been putting all these materials together. And we had boxes and boxes of TDK tapes. It was back when we used cassette tapes. And we had, we'd finished really late, and so there were just tapes all over our living room. And these tracks, the leftover tracks were all over our living room. So I thought, oh, man, we are just done. This is the end of our time in China. So I, I picked up my phone. I wanted to call Helen to you know, put it away. <laughs> so I started dialing her number, and the guy said, put your phone away. But fortunately, the call had gone through. So I put my phone away. A couple seconds later, it rang, and I just picked it up. I said, Helen, I'm here with the police, and we're coming to the house. <laughs> and she said, okay, and hung up, and then... <laughs> 
she sprang into action and she just took all the stuff and swooped it under the couches and got it all out of the way. But we had this one room where the baby crib was because Kia was a little baby then. And it was filled with these boxes still and all over the room. And so she just locked that door and said, well, hopefully they won't look in there. Well, they came in the house and they started looking around and they said, hey, we need to see in this room. So we had this big key ring, had all these keys on it. So we just kind of were hoping to stall and try and all that. Well, finally, one of the keys actually did open it. And the, the policeman walked up and he opened the door and he looked in the room, looked at all the tapes and turned back to his colleague and said, in Chinese, Mao Wu, there's no nest here. So we realized, oh, they were thinking we were hiding Koreans in our house. So somehow, uh, so they took us to the police station, eventually found all these materials and scolded us, whatever, but we got to stay in China and nothing ever happened because of it, thank the Lord. Uh, and actually the place that they were going ended up was Jingxi, and we ended up going there. And at the time, we hadn't thought about that. So God even used that incident to steer us to this place where we later did ministry. So in an amazing way, he used this crisis for good. But somehow the story got distorted, and these Koreans thought I was smuggling Koreans or whatever. So, so the guy says this. He's standing up, and Steve's translating it. And I'm going, Steve, <laughs> that, that didn't happen, you know. Steve, and he can't do anything, he's just translating. And so then, I kid you not, maybe some of you of Korean ethnicity know about this, but I never saw it before, but everybody in the room got on one knee and pointed to me like this <laughs> and began singing this song to me. And, uh, and Steve's translating it, oh, you're so wonderful. <laughs> May God bless you and your family. And every time he's saying it, I'm going like, Steve. Because <laughs> he, knows, he knows the story real well, as well as I did. So I didn't know what to do. There was just nothing to do. So I just stood there and received it. But I learned that I, they weren't worshiping me above God, but they were, they were trying to show me honor. But it was inappropriate because I didn't deserve that. You know, I hadn't done what they thought I had done. I wasn't the hero they thought I was. And that's awkward. That was very awkward. But when we worship God, it's not. Because he, he deserves every bit of worship that we give him. And it should be natural for us to, to worship him. It's very appropriate. That, that was inappropriate. It was misplaced. Um, but... And because a song is so intimate, I mean, they were holding their hands like that and singing to me. Uh, it was a very intimate. That, that made it all the more awkward, was how intimate a song is. But that's the beauty of worship when it's appropriate and when it's placed toward God, is that it's deserved, and, and he enjoys it because it is deserved. Also, I've been thinking about this. I, know, I remember a few times years ago, uh, I went to the vineyard on Sunday nights, and there were thousands of college students that were coming from all over Southern California, and it was because the worship there was so great. It was really a wonderful thing that people were coming because they wanted to worship God. Uh, and they, now, with that, too, I, over time, I noticed 
it seemed like some people were coming not so much because they loved worshiping God, but they loved the feeling they got from worshiping God. And, and that's a big potential danger. That worship, is, as the song said, it's all about you, Jesus. It's about giving God glory, and we have to be careful. A byproduct of us worshiping God is often we feel great because we've done what we're created to do, worship God. And so we do feel good. We have to be careful that even worship can become a God. It, we can make it more important than God, or, or we twist it or uh, warp it. Um, so that we get wrapped up in just the feeling it, it gives us. And so uh, it's a tricky thing. We, we do have to be careful about it. But it's a response, our response, to God's greatness. In John uh, 4.21, the verse that was just read said, God seeks true worshipers that will worship him in truth and in spirit. It said that verse talks about God seeks that. He is, he is looking for people because he deserves it. He delights in our praise. So when, when we give him praise, we're, he, he's seeking it and he locks on to us because we're giving what he is looking for. He doesn't need it, but he deserves it. Um, so when we worship him, we can take delight in knowing, wow, God, God wants that. He wants us to be worshiping him and he delights in it. And I think a lot of that is because, like I said, it's such an intimate thing to sing to somebody, to sing, to have a song that is about that person. Wow, that is so intimate. Also, we know that we're to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. The greatest commandment, to love God. But we're to love him not just with our mind, but also with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we know the heart is the seed of emotions. You know, there's a lot of theology written about like the heart, the soul, and the spirit, and I can't make heads or tails of it, but all I know is God's saying he wants us to worship him with more than just our minds, more than truths. So it's okay. our emotions should be involved, our heart. It should come from a deep place, a place. You know, Proverbs says the heart's man, a man's heart are deep waters. You know, your heart is so hard to understand. It's deep. It's a wellspring of life, another verse says. But God, he wants the worship to come up out of that to him. So it's okay to, and everybody I hope knows, you know, of course, it's okay to be emotional in, in your worship, to be excited about it. Um, for any, maybe if in case anybody's worried, I'm not trying to make everybody charismatic today. Uh, what I want to do for all of us is help us to more fully worship God and to understand worship better. A couple examples that I was thinking of uh, that I've been amazed of just of, of worship and what it's done for people. Uh, one of our teammates in this town that we worked in was a man named Mark Randall. He was a doctor. And Mark is just a really interesting guy. Uh, it was such a privilege to work with him. He was a surgeon. And he grew up in Rhodesia, which later became Zimbabwe. But he, his dad was a missionary doctor there for 20 to 30 years. His dad just passed away. And we had the privilege. He came and did some medical clinics with us. Um, and just an amazing family. Uh, Mark used to go to high school. He said, yeah, I drive to high school. I carried a rifle to school every day. 
because there was so much fighting going on that he literally carried a rifle to class uh, in high school. But God did amazing things in their family. And, but every year we'd have an annual retreat in Thailand. And after that, we were, uh, one day we were in a small group and we sang the song we sang this morning, um, You Give and Take Away, um, Blessed Be the Name of the Lord. You know, it says, Every blessing you pour out, I'll turn back to praise. It talks about the good times of life in the land that is plentiful. Lord, I'll bless your name. And then the song talks about, but when I'm found in the desert place, when I'm walking in the wilderness, still, Lord, I'll, I'll say, blessed is your name. And that day, Mark had gone to the hospital with his wife, and they, they informed them that they found a big spot on her lung. And he, as a doctor, knew that that was not good news. And they didn't know exactly what it was. But they came back to the meeting, and that night, that was the primary song that was sung many times. And he told me, he said, it came to that part where it says, Lord, you give and take away, but my heart will choose to say, blessed be your name. And Mark said, that song is so precious to me, because that night, that's what I told God. I said, God, my wife Tina, looks like she might have very serious cancer, and she may not live very much longer. But Lord, you gave her to me, and your Lord, if you choose to take her, then I will say, blessed be your name, that Lord, you are good. I trust in you and your ways. I don't, I don't understand why you would do that, but I, I trust that you are God. And so he said, I sang that song from the deepest part in my heart that night. And we know that gave God great pleasure. It gave him so much worth that his creation would say, God, I don't understand what's going on. It looks like you're taking my most precious thing in my wife, but I will choose to trust you. I'll choose to praise you. Oh, that just gives God such glory. Praise the Lord. His wife, they found out the next day it, was, it wasn't something serious. She didn't have to have any further treatment. Um, but in Mark's life, that was uh, one of the most important moments, that he was willing to even give his wife back to God if he chose to take her. Also, there's a man named Dave Scott. He was a staff sergeant in the Army. Uh, my last year when I was in the Air Force, I served as a parole officer and the interim commander of an Army Air Force prison. And I, I worked on the Air Force side, and there was an Army side, but we got to know the Army guys. And one of the guys I got to know was this Staff Sergeant Dave Scott. And he was about my size, but he was about 280 pounds, and he was just all muscle. He was just a bodybuilder, a huge guy. But when you get him alone, and he often acted kind of like a tough guy, but when you get him alone, he was a really sensitive guy, really interesting guy. And so I got to know him, and I'd joke around with him, and um, began got to know him and asked some about his faith and, and uh, you know, he had this hard exterior, but then he began telling me that, yeah, he'd had some real encounters with God in his life. And he said the most significant one he ever had was when his first baby was born. He said he just, when they got home, he took his baby and it was late at night, but he just 
walked outside his door, and he was just so overcome by what a miracle this baby was. And, and he knew that it was just a blessing from God, that God had just overwhelmed him with this gift of this child. And he just felt so humble. And he told me, he said, I just walked outside, and I just raised this baby up to the sky, to the stars, and I just said to God, God, I am so unworthy, but thank you so much. Thank you for this baby. And in that moment, he was giving glory to God. He was telling God how worthy God was. And God got great pleasure from that as he declared the worth of God, as he responded to God's greatness. We, we all have differing kinds of moments like that, um, but a great worship moment doesn't have to necessarily be like that. It can be just giving thanks to God for something ordinary in our life, and yet that brings glory to God. So I'm not pushing that we all have to have ecstatic experiences, but to drive the point home that God gets pleasure from our worship and he alone deserves it. I want to look at a, a passage today in 2 Samuel. If you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Samuel chapter 6. We're going to look at the whole chapter here. And it's a very interesting one here. Um, mysterious, troubling, it's got it all. Second Samuel chapter 6, the title here is The Ark is Brought to Jerusalem. It says, David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Bach Judah to bring up from there the Ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. Okay, so the Ark of, the Ark of God is portrayed as having the, um, the power of God, but the presence of God it was thought to have been in, in the Ark. So it's a very, very holy thing. It's, I think it's not quite like Raiders of the Lost Ark, where they open it up and all the people's faces melt off. But maybe that would have happened. I mean, it, it's a, a powerful thing, okay? And we see this in verse 3. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was, also, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshold, threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. So here it's so holy. It's representing the very presence of God. So to touch it was totally inappropriate. Uh, even it seems it was, may have been accidental. But to even accidentally to, to allow that to happen was so inappropriate. It says, And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah, meaning the breaking out against Perez to this day. 
And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? Okay, this object is so, has so much power and represents the presence of God and, uh, among such unholy people. David was perplexed. How, how could they get it to Jerusalem? How, this was impossible. So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was later told to King David, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belonged to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six step, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So it's more like an undergarment that the priests would wear, uh, almost like underwear. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting with the sound of the horn. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among the people the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all departed, each to his house. So he gave them these things so they could continue to celebrate this amazing day. But it says... David danced before the Lord with all his might. Isn't that amazing? Just think for yourself, ask yourself the question, have I ever worshipped God with all my might? Have I, have I ever even desired to do that? Have I ever even tried to do that? Well, David was a man after God's own heart. That was in his heart to to take all that he was, and his, I think that included his heart, his soul, his mind, and strength, all of it, with all of his might, he wanted to give glory to God. And how interesting, he, just before this, he's confused, he's angry at God, he doesn't understand what's going on. How am I going to get this ark there? But God, you're making it impossible. I don't know exactly why he was angry. Was, it, was he angry because he killed Uzzah? Was he angry because it, was, it just didn't seem possible to get it? Regardless, he, it's messy, isn't it? It's a messy situation. David's confused. But where does he come out? He comes out dancing with all his might before the Lord. And we see this in many of the Psalms, uh, many that are written by David. It starts by questioning God. God, why have you forsaken me? Where are you, God? Why aren't you listening to me? He just tells it like it is. But where does he end up? You go to the end of the psalm, and almost every occasion, there's a few where it doesn't happen, but almost every time he ends up with praising God. He works through his, his questions about God, his confusion with God, his disappointment. He doesn't stop talking to God, no. He takes it before God and works through it and ends up 
praising God. So then that brings us after the people leave in verse 20. And David returned to bless his household. Okay, he's going back to bless his household. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, his wife, came out to meet David and said, Oh, how the king honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servant, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the Lord, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And then listen to this. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. Oh, it's one of the most devastating verses in the Bible. It's so sad, so tragic. Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. So what an amazing contrast we have here. David, who was he dancing for? Was he dancing for these servant girls? No, he was dancing for the Lord. And he just spoke the truth to her. She was filled with sarcasm. She was ridiculing David thinking, oh, you're putting on this big show. You're running around in your underwear putting on a show for these servant girls. And how that must have stung. But David knew the truth, and he spoke it. No, I was worshiping with all my might to the Lord. And I, I love the Bible. It's so poetic. It's such amazing literature, the way that it teaches this lesson without saying it. It could just say, God loves it when we worship him, we should worship him or something. But in so much more impactful, more beautiful, mysterious way, it just says, and Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. Clearly, this was a result that she was not worshiping God, that she ridiculed David, that her heart wasn't to give God glory. It was distracted by other things. And in looking at this, it became even more interesting to me. Um, so you see David worshiping with all his might. She has no child to the day of her death. And I've seen, it says, often our worship of God is directly related to how we've responded to God during the messiness of our lives. I went back and began looking at David's life and Michael's life. And they both have a lot of messiness. A lot of things that are just difficult to understand, for, for David, his life was very messy. Okay, he starts off great as a young boy. He rises up and he kills Goliath for the sake of the name of the Lord, that the Lord's name will be worshipped in all the earth. And then he gets married to Michael, who is King Saul at the time. His daughter is Michael. Okay, and David marries her and he says, I'm unworthy. How can I, a little shepherd boy, become part of the royal family? And he has to kill a hundred Philistines to get her hand. And he not only kills a hundred, he kills two hundred. So, but even though he's anointed to be the next king, time after time we see page and chapter after chapter where Saul is trying to kill him. 
Saul is trying to kill him, but God has had Samuel come and anoint him. He's the next king. God has made him the king, and, and it's God's will, and yet his life is messy. Saul's throwing, he, David plays, it says the evil spirit came over Saul, uh, and they would have David come and play music. But what did Saul do? Occasionally he gets so angry, he'd pick up his, his spear and try to kill David with the spear. And here David's doing this, but he's supposed to be the king. But David vowed that he would not kill the Lord's anointed. Okay, this is a messy situation. You'd think probably, and David has these enemies. His enemies are trying to kill him. We read about that. He calls out to God, God, my enemies are surrounding me. They're trying to kill me. Help me, God. He responds by taking his troubles to God time and time again. Okay, another trouble, his best friend Jonathan, who's to inherit the throne, Saul's son. Okay, but Jonathan and David have this incredible friendship. But even that friendship, Jonathan gets killed in battle. How bitter David could become over that. God, why would you allow that? My best friend, you take my best friend. But what was David's response time after time? Okay? He looked to God and he poured out his heart to God. He wrestled with these issues. He said, God, he didn't just say, oh God, I trust you, I trust you. No, he said, God, what's going on? Why don't you hear my prayer? Why are you allowing my enemies to uh, come overcome me? But through this process of talking with God and having relationship with intimate with him, he overcomes. But let's look at Michael's life now. Her, her life was equally messy. And this is what's so interesting. They come out in the end total different places. She's unwilling to praise the Lord. Seems like she, we're having to read between the lines some here, but it, it, she's, it seems like she's bitter toward her husband. She doesn't feel loved by him. She doesn't feel loved by God. She's bitter about life is what it appears. And, and she's judged for it. But her life, like David's, was messy. At first, she was given to David for a steep price, okay? And she was manipulated. Why did Saul give her to David? Is because he said, okay, I'll give you my daughter, and you can become part of the royal family, but you, to, get, to get her, you must kill 100 Philistines. He's thinking he's going to get killed doing that, okay? And, that, and the scripture says that. That was Saul's plan. But David doesn't get killed. He, kill, he kills 200 Philistines, and so Saul must give it. And then after that, we see many times where Saul sends his troops to kill David. In one of the cases um, oh, before that, actually, um, David, after this, helps, uh, Michael helps David escape. Uh, she finds out that Saul is sending soldiers to kill him. She, she helps him, lets him down out a window so that he escapes, and she... Um, that's a long story, but basically she helps him escape because it says she loved him. She loved him. And think, this man that killed 200 of the enemy soldiers for her. Wow, talk about a hero, okay? Would she feel like she was worthy of love if this man was willing to kill 200 people for her? Probably so. But then, strangely, in um, I'll put these in over it. I didn't write these down. But in, in 1 Samuel 19, uh, he's, it just states that Saul 
gave her to another man. So in this turmoil, somehow she ended up back under Saul's control, and he gives her to be married to somebody else. And then later, uh, she's taken back uh, to David. David says, um, Abner comes and said, I'll be on your side. I'll fight with you. David said, okay, but not until I have Michael back. And so they bring her back, and the scripture says her husband came all the way weeping and crying. Okay, this is messy. Okay, what, how did David, how did she leave David's household? What's going on there? Now she's married to somebody else. Now David takes her back, and this husband apparently truly loved her, and he's weeping the whole way she's coming back. How does Michael feel about this? What is going on? The scriptures don't make it very clear, but we can see, can you see how she might become bitter at David or bitter that she's taken away from this husband that loved her? She's, again, being manipulated by her father. There are plenty of reasons she had, just like David, okay, to be bitter at God. But in the end, her response is one of bitterness and jealousy toward David and accusing him of just wanting to put on a show for these women. It's understandable. It's understandable that she had some difficult circumstances. But what's amazing is David, he had a messy life too, but he ends up worshiping the Lord with all of his might. And I think the key was, we see the Psalms. He didn't ignore God. And so often when we have difficulties in our life, our natural response is to back off from God. We stop talking to God. We stop praying. And we just think about it. We try thinking it out or we'll go to a friend. Not that that's wrong. We'll go to a friend and we'll talk all about our problem with our friend. But it is wrong if, if we're talking to our friends about this problem, but we don't go to God how that must hurt his heart and how he loves it when our troubles cause us to come to him. Like David, David immediately goes to the Lord with his trouble. So this, is, uh, this has really been interesting to me, this idea that our worship of God is related to how we deal with the messy things in our lives. What about for you? If you think about some of the difficult times of your life, or maybe there's some messy stuff going, in your, going on in your life right now. Your relationship with your spouse isn't going like you want it, or with your kids, or at work, or someone has hurt you and you're stunned by it. What is, what is your response? Is it like David? To talk to God about it, and to worship God in the midst of messiness? Or are you more like Michael, becoming bitter and not talking to God, not worshiping God, but allowing messiness to drive you from God, which our natural flesh is prone to do? Let's just pray for a moment. Lord, we just do ask you now, Lord, we all know I'm, I'm guilty of when bad things happen, I immediately say, God, why are you doing this? Or times when something bad happens and I just think about it and think about it and don't come before you. And Lord, I know that just is offensive to you, that you're our Abba Father. You love it when as children we come and raise our arms and say, Abba, Daddy, help me. 
You created us to be in relationship with you. Lord, I just ask that you would forgive us all for these times when we ignore you, we forget about you, we stop talking to you at the very times that we most need you, the very times we most need to be talking with you and getting wisdom from you and listening to you and pouring our heart out to you. Lord, we just ask that you would help us. And for anyone that's in the middle of uh, something messy right now, God, that they would you strengthen them, that they would turn to you. And Lord, forgive us for those times when we haven't done that. I pray in Jesus' name. So I think this is a, a, a really important lesson we learned from, from this story. Also, worship, as I mentioned before, is, is not just singing. It's supposed to be a part of our whole life. In Romans 12, 1, it says, Paul says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy to you, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. So he's not saying, brothers and sisters, sing more, sing more songs to God. No, he's saying, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Give all that you are and say, Lord, here's my life. Here's my work. Here's my family. I give it all to you for you to use as you please. And he said, that's your true, that's true worship. That's proper worship. That we let God take the steering wheel and be in control of our lives. That's worship. So singing is important. Singing is intimate. But worship includes all of our life. Every time we obey God and say, God, I will do it your way instead of what I want or instead of the way all my friends say or instead of the way my culture says, I'm going to follow you. That brings him glory. That brings him honor. Also, heaven will have worship, but it's not just an unending worship service. It says that we'll be feasting with the Lord. We will reign with him. Um, it's hard to reign if you're singing, okay, that we're going to have work, just like in the Garden of Eden, responsibilities. Um, so w that affirms, again, that worship is about the entirety of our lives, not, not just singing. God is blessed by worship, and so are we. We worship, it's all about God, but as I said before, one of the byproducts is it blesses us. Our old pastor, Tom Wolfe, he used to have this quote, he'd say, what, uh, he actually said, what you hum, you become. So he encouraged people to sing, and um, that those truths, when you sing them, when you hum them, they get into your heart and they begin to solidify. You you begin to internalize them. I, I realize, oh, I don't, ever, I don't ever hum. So that when we sing like spring, truths blossom in our hearts. I think that's true. As we sing truths about God, worship about him, that in our hearts, these truths begin to blossom. They take root in our, our heart. Okay? I, was very, I was embarrassed initially, but I talked to my brother last uh, about a month ago, uh, and he said he teaches all these classes on helping people to minister better to Muslims, and he encourages contextualization, making it more relevant to them. And he said, yeah, he says, I was always embarrassed about this. I said, I have this quote. I always share it, and I put my name under it. It kind of feels weird, he said, but he says, my quote is, 
the key to contextualization is context. He says, it's, you know, it's kind of obvious, you know. But it's really true. Everybody thinks what I'm saying means, oh, they have to apply it to every country. He said, no, it's according to the context. But he said, so I take credit for a crummy quote, and so that's my crummy <laughs> quote, too. <laughs> yeah, I wish I could come up with my favorite quote. Uh, this is an aside here, but, you know, you wish you could really come up with something profound. I heard someone the other day say, yeah, my favorite quote is, I want to die peacefully like my grandfather not yelling and screaming like the passengers in his car. <laughs> but that's the best I can do. Yeah. Also, another interesting thing, there's a book called The Insanity of God. And one of the chapters talks about this man researched all the places in the world where people were being harshly persecuted for their faith. And Almost in every case, he found that people had one particular song or several songs, he called them often a heart song, that really strengthened them, enabled them to get through their time. Uh, because, and he talked about the power of a song, how intimate it is. Like we talk when you sing a song to a person, and that song is about them, and that they were bonded to God uh, in the song. And many times, their captors uh, were greatly impacted by that song as well. When here this person they despise or whatever has all of this joy in the midst of being beaten and here they are not in prison and they don't have joy. Uh, so worship is, blesses us as well. It's a byproduct. Worship is all about God, but the byproduct is it blesses and helps us as well. Lastly, I want to talk about this idea. Your, your posture influences your attitude. Okay, Y-P-I-A. Okay, the cowboys must get this. That's why they say, you know, Y-P-Y-P-I-A. Yippee-I-A. I think that when they say yippee-I-A, they're reminding themselves about their, your posture influences your attitude. Okay, I just made that up, but <laughs> I hope that'll help you remember it. Okay, and in the Bible, we see many types of postures for prayer. People lying prostrate, lying on their stomach, uh, praying and worshiping, kneeling, standing, looking to heaven, raising their arms. Um, and so those are, those are biblical. Um, but what I found is this, this idea that your posture does influence your attitude. Okay, pretend we're going to have a one-on-one -on -one interview, and I want you to get on the edge of your seat and act like I'm the president of the United States and I'm going to give, or I'm a financial advisor and I'm going to give you the key to making millions of dollars, okay? So get on the edge of your seat, lean forward, look me directly in the eye. I mean, this is important, okay? All right, now bring your hand up and pull your ear out like this. I mean, you don't want to miss this, okay? All right, are you looking at me? Okay? All right, now, if I said something, it makes a difference. You're a lot more attentive, aren't you? Okay? <laughs> Our posture influences our attitude. It's, it's, it's just a truth. Okay? Now, I want you to close your, or first put your hands like this. Okay? And say the words, Lord, I want you to speak to me. Now close your eyes. Okay? Now we don't have time to uh, have a long time. But now put your hands down on your lap, okay, and do the same. Lord, speak to me. Okay, do you notice a difference? 
that little motion of just our posture, our hands opening up to say, Lord, I want to receive from you. It helps. I'm, it's not magic or anything. It's just a principle. And I believe that's why we see so many different postures. But also, our posture expresses what's in our heart. Okay? Um, Sam, can I get you to stand up? Let's say I really, Sam and I have been good friends for a long time. Okay? And I, got, I was in a lot of stress and a bunch of things happened and I, I treated <coughs> Sam really badly. And I, I actually... I cussed him out, and I just said, I, I hate you. I don't, you know, just told him some horrible things, okay? Now, if I later realize, what was I thinking? Sam has been such a faithful friend. Now, if I come back to him and say, Sam, I am so sorry. Yeah, I am so sorry for what I did, okay? I, that makes a difference, doesn't it? Thank, thank you, Sam. <laughs> okay? Or, or our spouse, if we've done something that just was so stupid. You know, we can say, oh, I'm, I'm really sorry. But we bow before them. Our posture is, if that's a true reflection of our heart, that's powerful. And it, it influences our attitude. Our attitude is expressed by it. So it goes both ways. I've found that sometimes in worship, I'll raise my hand, not because I'm worshiping the Lord, it's more as an act, Lord, help me, I'm getting distracted by so many things, and I do want to give you worship. So by raising my hands, or if I'm praying and getting distracted, many times I'll put my hands like that and pray. It's just amazing how my attitude changes. So let us, let's just realize, I just want to make that point, that in Scripture we have examples of many types of, of prayer. Um, lying prostrate, a man full of leprosy, fell on his face and begged Jesus, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. That was just an expression of his desperateness. He fell on his face. Job tore his robe, shaved his head, and fell on the ground and worshipped and said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I'll return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He fell on the ground. It was an expression of his heart. Bowing. When Abraham's servant went to find a wife for Abraham's son, and he heard that they were going to give this wife, he bowed to the earth before the Lord, showing his gratefulness. His posture demonstrated his attitude. It says, one day every knee shall bow. They will on heaven and earth and under the earth. Okay? Jesus, after at the tomb of Lazarus, lifted his eyes to heaven and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. So this person of praying by looking up to heaven. And then many examples. Here's Solomon when he prayed at the altar of the Lord. said, spread out his hands toward heaven. And then he prayed his prayer. So we see many different forms of worship. I'm not, I'm not trying to say, oh, everybody ought to do these. But just be aware, they're in the Bible. It's helpful to many people. What I really want to encourage people is, let's worship the Lord from our heart. And let's find ways to worship Him, not just corporately in church, and to do that more, um, more and more from our heart, but outside of church. That as we're driving in our car, maybe sometimes we just turn off the radio and we just sing a song to the Lord. That is so pleasing to Him. We just want to express how great He is how good he's been to us, 
how much we love him, how much we need him. So in conclusion, let's worship God wholeheartedly in here, while we're here, corporately. Let's spur one another to love and good deeds, to worship God with all of our might, unhindered. Realize that we're willing to try different biblical postures if they will help us worship God more deeply, that we won't, I know many times we feel self-conscious about others or we feel, oh, people think I'm a Jesus freak or a wacko or a, a religious nut. Um, one friend once told me, he said, he said, I have a definition for a Jesus freak. He said, a Jesus freak is anybody that loves Jesus more than you. <laughs> No, I don't think that's completely true. There are some just people that have gone off the edge and do some wacky things. But I do find that sometimes I judge people, and then I later I get to know them. I'm like, wow, they really do love the Lord more than me. And they were you know, doing their little dance there or waving their flag because they, are, they just have so much love they want to get out. And I'm convicted, wow, I was judging that person. But I think they just love God more than I do. So we should be careful. Certainly Michael's example would warn us, be careful about judging others. Don't look down on others that worship differently, although we need to think biblically about it. If, they're, if we're seeing things that aren't in the Bible, then those should be red flags. But if they're doing things that are in the Bible, uh, don't look down on them, but have wisdom. And then less, lastly, like David... Let us take the messiness of life to God and help us resolve those issues so that, or, or through that process, then we can be true worshipers of him. Uh, we don't ignore him. We run to him in the messiness. It's not what our flesh wants to do. It's not how we're built. It takes his Holy Spirit. He's put his spirit in us. And his spirit calls us to go to God in the messiness, in the difficult times when things aren't going right. So yield to his spirit, and in the messy times, the difficult times, run to him. And as happened with David, you, we will all become greater worshipers of him as we do that. Let's pray. Lord, we just want to tell you we desire to be worshipers that bring pleasure to you that you, when you see us worshiping you, you just are pleased. And Lord, we want to have an intimate relationship with you, that, that you really are our heavenly daddy, our papa that we know so intimately and need so desperately. And we declare worship is all about you and that you alone deserve all of our praise. It's placed in the right spot when we take our worship to you. We want to see you lifted up and exalted. Lord, help us as a church. Help us as individuals. Help us in church. Help us outside of church to have times where we'll just set aside. We'll make it a sacrifice that we just bring before you a sacrifice of praise to lift up, to give you as a gift our worship to you, to bring you pleasure. Lord, make us true worshipers. We pray this for the sake of your name and your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.